Hello and welcome to The Grand Thunk, the podcast in which we, Alex Blanchard and Rhiannon Kearns, discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to. A fairly simple premise. Welcome. Hello. It's so good to be here. Hello, welcome to our new podcast and thank you for listening. My name's Alex Blanchard and I'm a writer. And my name's Rhiannon Kearns and I'm an actor. This is a new podcast about all the things we really love, books, plays, poetry, TV, film and podcasts. And we're going to be chatting and recommending on a weekly basis coming out, hopefully, every Monday around 8am. We're going to have transcripts in our Instagram bio, which is at The Grand Thunk. And we want this podcast to be as inclusive and as accessible as possible. So please do get in touch if you have any suggestions for improving this. You can contact us on social media or email thegrandthunk at gmail.com. And please like and subscribe to hear us in your ears every week. How are you today? <laughs> I am good. I'm glad we have managed to reach the other side of the technical mountain that we've just been climbing oh, to try and actually get online. <laughs> the anticipation's been building. But we've, we've done, done it. it. We've We're made here. it. So what have you been reading recently? <laughs> so I have just finished The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, which is a great read and a really nice slow read actually. I really enjoyed not kind of racing through it. It was a really lovely, interesting and gripping story without kind of me obsessively page turning, which I quite enjoyed. And it's one of those books that really left me missing the world of the characters. Do you ever get that when you've just oh. you've lived with them for a while and now you're slightly sad that you're not seeing them anymore? Yeah, that's the sort of best worst feeling, isn't it? Where you just feel an empty hole mm. in your heart and you have to sort of pick up another book and start trying to fill it and then you're like, it's not the same. It's not. And actually, yeah, I've definitely had that. The next book I'm reading is kind of very different and the characters, I don't think I'm meant to like them, but I really don't like them. And I think it's probably because I really liked the last characters I was reading. <laughs> well, t- tell us about the characters in um, in The Vanishing Half. I haven't read it. So, yeah, it's so it centres around a pair of twins and we meet them in their childhood and we kind of travel almost, yeah, about 50 years with them, I think. It's set in Louisiana and it starts sort of in the 1940s and takes us all, all the way through to the 90s. And these two twins, Desiree and Stella, and they live in this very insular, small, fictional town in South America. Not in South America, that's incorrect completely. What I meant was in southern states of America, (laughs) in Louisiana. Um, But yeah, it's a fictional town (laughs) and it's exclusively for white passing black people. So it's kind of like this unofficial but also kind of official goal that everyone that lives there is kind of as white passing as possible there's sort of mention of characters who have got got even kind of gingery blonde hair and freckles and lots of white characteristics and so these twins are brought up in this environment and they have a kind of i don't want to give away too many plot spoilers they have a very tragic event in their childhood um that ultimately ends up meaning that they both run away at the age of 16 I think um so they run away together and their lives take different paths and we follow them through the story but the kind of the pivotal point is that at at one point one of the twins kind of disappears off the face of the earth and we as the reader follow her journey and realize she's decided to live passing as white and the other twin ends up returning to her childhood town and 
it's just about the different journey they both take with their racial identity in a really stark way and they really really lose contact with each other and it was really interesting to me i i've i did a bit of research and it is obviously a fictional town but the kind of idea of passing as white is something i really like naively wasn't aware of as a thing especially at that point of history and the story is really interesting for loads of reasons as well as their race their kind of journey in that time in that time of their lives and the the kind of twinship as well and how they really are incomplete without each other and there's a really lovely line I'll butcher it and I can't remember it completely but it's at one point one of the twins daughters she asks her you know do you ever think about her where is she and Desiree says I'd know I'd feel it if anything had happened to her and so the twinship in it's really interesting but obviously the main premise of the book focuses around the race and the kind of identity of that and Mm. without giving too much of the story away Stella the character that passes as white it's such a conflicting story to follow because I can't I never felt comfortable with her I never felt like she was comfortable because she'd made this decision or she was comfortable moving back to thinking about her past life her present life there was always that kind of feeling of this shadow that she had which I think partly was mourning the loss of that relationship with her sister and her twin but also her identity that she had effectively turned her back on what did that say about her and and what was the world she was trying to fit into and it was just this constant struggle on a really minor but really constant level throughout her lifetime and I just it just got me thinking more and more about the identity that that race and culture brings and and can you choose it and can you run from it can you run to it and kind of what what that does to you as a, as a as a person over the span of your whole lifetime that's so interesting i feel like we've been on on really similar journeys this week with with the books we're reading i was reading nella larson passing which is has so many parallels with the vanishing act i didn't realize at all but it follows two characters who are childhood friends irene redford and claire kendry and who go on those separate paths of one of them choosing to pass as white and one of them choosing to remain in her sort of African-American heritage but that's so similar how interesting like that I is, know when was it when was it written do you know it was written in 1929 and I think it was set in sort of 1920s America so right in the middle of segregation and Jim Crow which uh, yeah as you were saying mm. that I think the idea of passing for our context is very much Sorry, my flatmate is just outside and she needs to be let in. Hold on. <laughs> She's back. <laughs> She's back. Yeah, the the for our context. Now we very much think of passing as something to do with gender <laughs> rather than to do with race. And that, that, but that would have been so completely prevalent during segregation that that was that the advantages and disadvantages on uh, being seen on either side of that very mm. clear defining line. Yeah, and it it made me think in a really kind of basic, my first instinct when I was understanding about it a bit more was, you know, why didn't everyone do it? And that's with the hindsight as a hero and all that, you know, but you look back on the abuse and still the abuse suffered due to racism. You kind of think if you were white passing, especially maybe if you had a family, if you had children... I can imagine you would almost really encourage that and be like as desperate as you can to live a life that's going to persecute you less. Mm. But then you've obviously got the kind of your inherent pride and culture as to who you are and your identity and and how much of your identity are you willing to forego 
for yeah. a, a straighter path at life. It's I think it's really really interesting and a huge yeah chasm to kind of explore. And it's so interesting that you picked up on that like uneasiness in Stella because I I think that's what I was seeing in the character Claire who's passing as white and she's mm. married to this man who really dislikes black people. Wow. And he doesn't know that she's black. Sorry, I was just having a moment of like, do you say black if someone is passing as white and trying to work out like the language around that? Gosh, yeah, of course. I hadn't even considered that because obviously if you're like, like you said earlier, if you're talking about it in terms of gender, Mm. you would use the pronouns that they're their current gender identity but do you do that with race i don't know no i've no idea Mm. yeah no it's so interesting that sort of uneasiness of the character because claire is this really sort of seductive sinister woman who's who like exists in the book in a quite a sort of absent way which is very interesting that she's 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 present and she sort of keeps on turning up in these it, the books divided into these three sort of almost acts of um encounter re-encounter and finale and she sort of appears in these encounters but in a very yeah just sort of peripheral way and then Irene's sort of trying to come to terms with Claire's life choices and then that throws into sort of relief all her own life choices and trying to work out whether or not the advantages that she gained in terms of like money and class are worth the discomfort of not being at peace Mm. with your own identity. Gosh yeah does it come to a head is there a I mean I suppose you don't want to give away a conclusion but it sounds like it it could be one of those books that ends without a kind of clear decision because of the nature of the problem. It ends on one of those notes of like I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do any spoilers because there's, there's, there's a really beautiful plot that sort of underlines it as well. It's not, um, it's not one of those totally abstract books. Sometimes you can have books that are sort of abstract from plot, and it's very, it is plot based in it, and it, and it works through ideas of sort of womanhood and sex, in a way that's really pithy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it does, it does kind of come to this head. There's this sort of really extraordinary moment that Irene has in in kind of towards the end where she intuitively knows that something's happened and I think that for me really encapsulated the thoughts I have about this idea of trying to clearly define people as black or white or like you know male or female that that, those really clear-cut boundaries that that sort of intuition of knowing something in your gut Mm. and that you really feel something but you can't ever define it properly and you can't ever put words around it it's just a sort of and you can't prove it it's just what you feel and I think that for me really because I was trying to do what you were doing that sort of battle of like what yeah. is what is race and how do you how do you define I mean the um the introduction of passing has this really interesting essay by Thaddeus M Davis who cited the case Plessy versus Ferguson which was a case in 1896 where a white passing man called Plessy um, who had sort of quite a lot of white heritage wanted to be wanted to be deemed white and it, he he lost his case and it and it and it sort of set that that marker of that it you know if you have the smallest fraction of african heritage that defines you as black you know that like one drop defining you mm. and setting that concrete marker and it feels quite i think what you were saying about 
it's a gut feeling, you know you, and it's hard to define and label. And it, it's almost like it's unnecessary. It's If the world didn't need to label us from the outside in, mm. then it, it really wouldn't matter because everyone knows so clearly, or if they don't know, they go on their own journey with it, with their identity. I think it is inherently personal. Mm. And I think only in our society of, of bracketing and, and putting in boxes and, and writing on forms and ticking boxes does the yeah. need for the difficulty with those labels even become because, you know, it's, it's hard enough people's own journeys with their identity and their true self. And I think society's measures that we put on top of that is is a real cause of destruction of, uh, often for what people truly think and believe. But then on the other end of the scale, I mean, and I haven't done enough research on this properly, but I started and actually that, that court case you mentioned triggered my memory of it. I feel like that's happened in recent times as well. Like over the last few years, I, I'm sure I remember there being news articles, especially about white people trying to pass as black. Mm. And I, I briefly looked it up and the phrase that was quoted was passe noir. And it, it often happens for people who are trying to take on positions of power that are usually held by black people. Mm. I kind of thought, gosh, how it's, it's sort of really weird. Like, it's just an interesting that that is a that is a thing that is a concept if we have a right to identify as you know anything does that include race where does the line drawn is there a line Ugh, I don't know it's such a it's such a tangle it does to me in a kind of like you said gut instinct way feel really wrong mm. in some ways to pass for something that's I think it's for the gain yeah that's what I'm trying to go with it is is it depends on the outcome or the gain if it, if it's for your own you know self-worth and your your feeling of completeness versus what you'd like to be perceived as for you know positions of power or or for your own personal Mm. gain I guess that's a hugely different thing but then I guess placing personal gain against a government or country that's treating you unfairly like with segregation and in general institutionalized racism and then I guess conversely as well whether if you feel like there is, I don't know, positive discrimination or whatever, if you feel like that is wrong, does that then give you a right to identify as you please? I guess, it, yeah, as you said, a really thorny issue. I wish I had looked up more information about specific cases, but it is, I just re- remember thinking that I'm sure that's happened recently and, and that is crazy. Yeah, and it depends, I, I suppose, how you define race about whether it's you know how you look whether it's you know the culture that you exist within whether it's your mannerisms your heritage your friend like it depends how you're classing race as to put as to how inauthentic it is because I'm sure again it's that thing that you I never want to define someone else's experience for them and say right or wrong either way and maybe we shouldn't have to I mean I mean, it really is such a, like, complex and nutty subject. I mean, I I feel like the Nella Larson book was... Just because the way she wrote about it was so simple. All her sentences were very simple and just had a real, a really beautiful elegance to them. But every, but every time you've read them, they, they created this whole other layer of, of that intuitive... Uh, intuitive nebulous sort of like undertone which I thought like really sums up that debate of it's it's one thing but also there's so much loaded history with with it there was one 
line that I pulled out. Yeah. No, Claire cared nothing for the race. She only belonged to it, which I thought was so, because it's so simple and so mm-hmm. elegant, but like there's so much in that that's completely loaded and heavy and utterly complex. Nella Larson is a an extraordinary writer. She she was writing during the Harlem Renaissance and was really one of the for, forefront of women writers during that that cultural epoch. And I just I really want to read all her other work because I think what she did in this book was just beautiful, just mm. stunning. That's actually I love that when you yeah you kind of start a journey with an author and go oh, I can't wait to devour the rest of your work now. Mm, completely completely <laughs> I've also I've just watched Rebecca oh just come out which was so brilliant I have you have you read the book or seen the the Alfred Hitchcock film I have done neither but I have seen I actually saw a theatre production of it by oh. Nehi five or six years ago now but yes, I've, and it was an Emma Rice production. It's when Emma Rice was directing lots for and adapting for Nehi. And yeah, loved it. And I went with my mum and my gran, who were both big Daphne du Maurier uh, fans. And so mm. they knew the story going in and I didn't. So yeah, in a short answer to your question is, I haven't read or watched the film, but I've seen the theatre p- production and absolutely loved it. And could do a whole other podcast about how much I love Emma Rice, but we'll 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 say that for another time. <laughs> well, I might have to ask you more. I don't know any of her work, but I imagine it adapts really well to being staged because it's so. I mean, it's it's oh, it was so much fun. I was showing it to my husband who hasn't seen it before and didn't know anything about it, and I think he thought it was just going to be a kind of period drama, and wasn't expecting the whole plot and and that real. I mean, like we were saying with the other books, that that kind of intuition and sort of second second sense, sixth sense of something <laughs> else out there, the puppeteering and orchestrating the happenings of of the film, and it had some really stunning um, set design that was so unsettling and so uneasy within as like this ivy eider down cover thing that was just so unsettling and and provocative of of that lack of belonging i don't should i should i explain the plot a little bit yeah go on give us a bit of more of a taste of it <laughs> so it was set i think into war i think it was written around 38 there's this very beautiful sweet naive young lady's maid who's played by lily's james and she meets the handsome stoic mr de winter on holiday being a, a lady's companion he sweeps her off her feet and takes her back home to Mandalay and he's being haunted by the death of his first wife, Rebecca. And when Lily James, who doesn't have a... She isn't given a first name, so she just becomes Mrs De Winter. When the new Mrs De Winter returns to, to Mandalay, she's she discovers this... She, oh, she's assailed by all these sort of memories of Rebecca not memories, but memories through the house and through the staff and the people that visit and, and this huge sort of reputation that that Rebecca had and that and that saturates every second of her existence. And then there's, of course, Kristen Scott Thomas as Mrs Danvers. Oh, um, I love her. Oh, my God, she's so good in this. She's so, so fantastic playing that sort of charming but utterly stony, elegant controlling force that sort of lurks around the house 
and putting that against Lily James. I, I thought it was a really beautiful film. And I would love, I haven't seen the um, Hitchcock version, mm. but I have read the book, but a really long time ago. Um, so not near enough to sort of remember the nuance of it, but just that, that feeling of really just uneasy, unsettled, restless, kind of not knowing quite what we're facing, but, but knowing that something is, is, is wrong. I definitely recommend it. <laughs> and it's is it a full length film or is it a series? Full length film, yeah. I think right, it's yeah. sort of two hours or something. Oh, I definitely have to give that a watch. Yeah, as you were talking about it, I remembered more and more from from having seen it at the theatre and it is so Emma Rice is just so she's so brilliant at adaptations and new work, but she adapts stories so brilliantly and she she's kind of famous for her sort of adapting fairy tales or fables or or kind of epic novels and giving them a really like physically charged and exciting energy. Mm. She's one of those theatre directors and theatre makers that I I feel both surprised by and comforted by whenever I see her work because there's such a trademark she has a, she has a trademark style that you watch and I'm like oh it's Emma Rice it's brilliant and there's that familiarity of the way she works but then also there's always something new that surprises me whether it's you know puppetry music the way she works with a set physical theatre there's so there's always a little a quirk that leaves mm. me thinking afterwards and I think I'm remembering this rightly. I really hope I am. I think there was a kind of Greek style chorus that they included in the household. Um, oh, interesting. I really hope I remember that right and I've not dreamt it. <laughs> but it kind of added to that uh, that kind of dark twist on a fairy tale um, with a kind of mm. classic story, but bringing that, yeah, dark twist to it. Um, mm. And she also, I don't know how it translates behind the camera but there was a lot of comedy in it when I saw it I remember there was always a comedic present you know there was a maid I remember being really funny lots of kind of physical comedy which I always think is just however dark or serious the story I I kind of think you can't go wrong with with deft touches of of comedy and that kind of style was there any was there light moments in the film as well what was the balance like no, it wasn't. But I, I feel like, strangely enough, they almost used beauty as their sort of counterpoint, I think. Ooh. It was the sort of, yeah, the elegance of the setting and the, the beauty of the characters themselves that and the sort of the sea and this gorgeous geology, which I imagine was actually Cornish coastland. They, mm. I feel like they used those sort of things more as a sort of, as the counterpoint to that darkness. Yeah. But it wasn't. It wasn't stunning. It wasn't a film that's defined by the beauty in it. It's just there are some real moments of beauty, if you know what I mean. And I think that's so lovely right now and so needed. Whilst we're all in a kind of the, the nation is in a fairly miserable state and we're all stuck inside. Mm. I just think there's so much joy to be had from watching something so beautiful. Whether it's the set, the costumes, the the landscape, the story. I think I'm taking real enjoyment from that at the moment with what, with what I'm watching. It's nice just to kind of be wowed yeah. with your eyes <laughs> yeah yeah with that utter sort of romanticism of yeah. sort of little bureaus set in sort of french grey rooms and <laughs> totally beguiling <laughs> we all need a bit of that i've been reading another book which actually similarly sits in that world it's uh it's called perfume by and i don't know if i'm going to get his name right patrick Suckkind. i don't know it's got an umlaut above the above the u so i don't know Mm-hmm. quite hard to pronounce that it's this really extraordinary book about a 
child that is born with an amazing sense of smell Um, and he can define in some dust he can sort of smell the chicken from three weeks earlier and and the person that's been through that dust and the air that's been breathed out and it's this really fantastic all these sort of descriptions of the way he moves through his life because of his his sense of smell he feels that language is limited because he can smell so many different variations within one term that we would have given him wood or something within that one word he smells sort of a hundred different variations on that um, and so he feels that the language is really limited and therefore doesn't connect to human language or sort of humans necessarily at all and is this bizarre grotesque character that moves through his world and it gets quite dark because he he smells the smell of a sort of prepubescent girl that he sort of fetishizes into this holy unholy scent and he has this idea that it is scent that defines beauty rather than beauty itself and that if he can distill this scent then he can you know use that to become all powerful and it's just the most it's it's such exquisite descriptions and so totally grotesque looking at all the effluvia of human bodies and and how disgusting humans are and and also how beautiful at the same time and how we define our humanness by our scent and he has utterly he's completely devoid of scent that everyone's made uncomfortable by his lack of scent but not knowing why whoa that is such a cool concept i've never heard anything like that before I know it's such a beautiful book. Yeah, he has this whole inner world that he creates from from all his sense because the world itself becomes too sort of harsh mm. for his um his delicate little nose. Oh, I love that. Uh, and I, I yeah. when you were saying about the like, it's so beautifully written. I, I was that was going to be one of my questions was I can only imagine that the language is incredible because how to write a book for a, describing a character who hasn't got the words to describe his own experiences with smell do you just mean that that mm. that need for more words as a writer how do you try and then translate that to your reader that must yeah. be so difficult yeah that inherent paradox mm. of of not not using words to describe or using words to describe not using words yeah exactly really interesting but i really enjoyed that it sounds great it actually that reminds me of so on a completely different note but the language thing just gave me a nice little segue um was <laughs> that i've been absolutely hooked by watching harlots oh. have you heard anything about it or seen it or anything no, I haven't. I haven't, but it sounds interesting. I'm beguiled by the name already. Yeah, it's so great. I've absolutely like romped through it and I'm on season two already. It's one of those things that I'm kind of amazed hasn't become a, the kind of the huge hit of, of this year or years gone by. It actually came out in 2017. Um, it's a hmm. Hulu production, so it's originally on Hulu, and they put it on BBC iPlayer. I think it's been coming out nightly, but I've just been... <laughs> haven't been able to wait weekly, so I've just been watching it on the iPlayer. <laughs> and it is set it's a yes it's a tv series set in 18th century london and as the name describes it centers around the character of margaret wells who is incredibly portrayed by samantha morton who runs a brothel and it's about all the different women the harlots in this brothel and their and we follow their lives but the, there's so many things i could harp on about about it it, it starts with the stat of the date mm. early 1700s and it says at this time, one in five women makes a living from selling sex, which I don't know about you. That really surprised me. One in five. I was like, that's huge. Mm. I wonder, 
<laughs> I don't know whether it's going to get us a bit sort of theoretical and Marxist, but um, <laughs> the definition of selling sex. I read um, the really interesting pamphlet by uh, Silvia Federici on wages against housework, which um, uses that Marxist idea of economy and applies it to women's unpaid work that they do within sort of the household and then obviously within sex and whether being given money for for the house to run the house covers the unpaid sex that women provide and whether or not that's oh, that's sex work. but that I realized that's probably not used in those in that statistic <laughs> yeah no that's really interesting I never thought of it like that that's interesting but even you know that I just looked at it as a bare value yeah. as a sat and just really surprised me I just I think I'd always thought of, you know, history and prostitution and prostitution in history as this kind of hidden mm. back alleys affair. And actually Harless just opens up this Georgian world of debauchery and outlandishness and no shame and real a real surprisingly open attitude. I say that there's obviously still like a massive mm. lack of power for women in all kinds of ways. But it, it was just, it's just visually so exciting to watch. It's its big, it's bold, it's colourful, it's fast pace, it, which all just really reflects that kind of, like I said, that Georgian debauchery that then obviously was just much more toned down in the Elizabethan era. But I just loved the outrageousness of it. And it's its a show that's about sex in a really mm. non-sexy way, which I really liked and was really refreshing. And I don't think there's much of that out there. You know, the show is about mm-hmm. their workplace, a brothel, and their work is sex. And that's what the show explores. And it's it, it also, you know, through that, we see so many other elements. You know, it, it's, it's to do with how it connects to the justice system and money and power and the patriarchy. And mm-hmm. there's a lot that's there through it. But primarily, it's about sex work. And it's told through a female gaze. And it's, which I think shows... In, in leaps and bounds that that it's it's very evident that from watching it that it's got a really heavily female cast and yes, crew so important um, writers directors everything so important and I think that's why it's not sexy because it's about sex not mm. not being sexy you know they've got these incredible costumes these huge corsets and massive skirts and the wigs and everything and um, and and when they're having sex they're just kind of hitched up rather than stripping off in a sexy scene because you know, that was the practicality of it. It was cold. You were in a street corner or you were in a really drafty room. Like they just whacked the skirts up and got on with it. So, you know, there's nudity, but it's not kind of like Game of Thrones, raunchy nudity that's, you know, historical and sexy. And it's, yeah, it's just work. Yeah. And it made me think of a film that was the opposite for me. Did you ever see Red Sparrow a few years ago? It was Jennifer Lawrence film. Oh, no, I didn't. No. <laughs> I might, I mean, I, whoever I went to see it with had the opposite opinion and loved it. I think, I can't remember who. I was really cross with it when I came out of the cinema. I was really frustrated because it was kind of, and I didn't really know why. And I think now that I've fallen so in love with Harlots, I kind for all the reasons I just said, I think I kind of realised mm. why I really didn't engage with Red Sparrow because it felt like the opposite. There was, it's basically a film, it stars Jennifer Lawrence, who is brilliant in it, of course. And it's about Russian women who are trained as like sex spies and use their sexuality mm-hmm. to uncover sort of state secrets and highly guarded information. And they kind of learn how to seduce this information out of people as a weapon. But it just felt like that was it. It didn't feel empowering. It didn't feel like they claimed it. It was it was just about sexiness. <laughs> and the power mm. for me was just lost. 
and I think in the film ultimately she you know she's forced into it and and it's it's awful and then she reclaims it and she becomes brilliant and blah 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 and like I think her arc is meant to show that it she defined it and reclaimed her body and her sexuality which is you know I get but it was based on a book written by a man. The, the script was written by a man. It was directed by a man. And I just really mm-hmm. felt that. It was so present that it wasn't through a female gaze. And Harlots is just the opposite of that. And uh, yeah, coming back to my original link with the language, the script and the language is just so enjoyable. Like it's the kind of language that as an actor, if you read it off the page, you would just be desperate to get your mouth around those words. Like it's so feisty and fiery and enjoyable mm. so the show is created by moira buffini and alison newman and then they have different female writers on episodes and the concept of the show is based on harris's list of covent garden ladies which is kind of what it says on the tin it's basically it was a directory of prostitutes that was around in the 1700s and so it was literally a, a kind of a booklet of the Covent Garden ladies. It had their ages, their addresses, their attributes. And it was released yearly, almost like kind of yellow pages. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it went on for, I think it started, let me, yeah, 1757. It was it was first released and it was released yearly until 1795. So I would love to be a fly on the wall during the <laughs> pitching of that thing to a publishers or something. What we're going to do is we're going to, you know, we're going to have X many men who are going to go out, sample all the goods, come back, we'll all report, we'll have like a standardised system by which we rate women. And, oh my God, yeah. that's totally revolting, but also quite funny. And it was... Um, um, very much for a middle class audience, this this sort of yellow pages of women. Um, so How I strange. know. So this this is this was obviously a real a, a book or pamphlet or whatever it was, and I think it's been made into also a histor- like there's there's a British historian who's written around it more widely, which you can buy to read. But I think this is that was a huge catalyst for this show, and so they've actually had a, an amazing wealth of language to pluck from from these adverts I guess or these descriptions and so but at the same time I I read an article with Moira Buffini about the making of the show and she was saying how you know they had this obviously they had this great amount of words they could choose from that were historically accurate but then also they just made things up (laughs) because Uh they liked the sound of certain phrases and it's it's a period drama that also feels really present I know that sounds like a bit of an oxymoron but it's just one of those things where it you know it's in a different time period because of what you're seeing with your eyes and the language has got enough nods to the time period to not feel jarring but it's also got enough of the attitudes and energy of the present times to really relate really nicely and so because of that they 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 included phrases that they just like the sound of there was like a venereal disease that that historically was too much of a juxtaposition with everything else they were saying and so they they referred to it as flap dragon you know she's got she's got flap dragon <laughs> and things like that which you know don't sound out of place Just joyful and it sounds great and it made me think of i don't know if you've ever done this in like a drama class or anything where when you're studying shakespeare and they they kind of show you all the insults that have been born from shakespeare or all the insults they'd oh, use yes. i remember doing an exercise with some kids that i was running a class for where we had like columns on the whiteboard of the first second and third word that you, you choose a letter a word from each column and string together your insult sort of like a kind of oh, I really want to think of one off the top of my head like a like you venomous lily liver 
livid. Lily livid. Oh my gosh, I was going to say lily livid. Boil. You found him as lily livid boil. Or do you know what I mean? And the amount of relish you'd have with throwing these insults across the classroom at each other. And it very much feels like they probably had loads of fun with that when making this show. Some of my classics I've picked out for you, some of my favourites, was one harlot talks about wanting to live long enough to see her muff turn silver. <laughs> which I really enjoyed. And the classic that's kind of repeated throughout the show is uh, no money, no cunny. <laughs> so there's just so, it's just so brilliant. That's so joyful. You've totally sold me. I really don't want another TV programme to get into, but I think I'm going to have to. Yeah, it's great. And it's really interesting for many reasons. Mm. I, I didn't realise that harlots or, or boards or prostitutes or whatever the word you use for them are, they use a lot in the in the show. There's a there's a setup where you can have a keeper. So the kind of ultimate goal, really, if you're in that line of work, was to be set up with a lord or someone very high up who was mm, your keeper. Sugar daddy. And they basic, yeah, basically. And you are literally kept by them. You are fed, clothed, you have an apartment, there's a contract, you have a wage, um, you also have access to money a certain amount. So you kind of have as much freedom as, and independence as was available to you mm. in that world which is interesting and the openness of that side of it as well you know it's the wives live somewhere else in a country house and the men live in the city with their apartment next door where their harlot lives and and that's kind of their day-to-day life and they go and see their wife whenever you know duty Mm. calls or the weekend or whatever and the wives all knew and it was really open and accepted um and one thing that uh, when someone pointed this out to me I was like oh that's so interesting is that often the money that would be spent by the lord on keeping their harlot was actually probably the wife's money because they would have come into that money because of her dowry from her family. Mm. So, you know, whilst getting married, this man would have inherited this dowry and then basically spends it on keeping another woman. (laughs) Which so interesting. Yeah, and it was so accepted and so normal. Um, It's so totally interesting because it throws into the relief everything that we think about relationships nowadays, this idea that the person you're with has to, you know, fulfil you spiritually, physically, emotionally, sometimes financially, interior decor, taste-wise, food-wise, that you, you're you meant to be totally in sync with the person mm. that you're living with. And I think, you know, many people are and can be at that level. But I think, I don't know, I think that separation of social versus physical versus financial, I think that's really interesting. For sure. There's just... There are so many questions that are thrown up by this show, whilst also not really, you don't notice it, do you know what I mean? It's mm. not like a big thinker whilst you're watching it, it's mostly really enjoyable. You know, there's there's definitely dark, sad moments, whilst a lot of light comedy as well, because of the nature of the era. Mm. And the main storyline kind of follows Margaret Wells, who runs this, this board house with, and her, two of her daughters are working and it kind of begins, the, the first few episodes begin with her being really kind of proud and excited because her youngest daughter, Lucy, is of the age where she's now going to auction off her virginity. Oh. Kind of li- literally to the highest bidder. Mm. And it's it's really weird and really interesting watching her maternal journey through it because you're so on her side and then you go, oh my God, she's pimping out her daughters. I have to keep remembering that. But also it's so <laughs> normal. That's what she did as a, you know, that's what, that was how she got into it is that yes. she was pimped out herself. Like... It's really, it's a funny roller coaster, and yes, where do you draw the line between this Kim Kardashian momager sort of situation and yeah, gosh, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. I hadn't even thought of that comparison. That's so interesting because it is. You can't help but 
not want to judge when it's all someone's ever when this is all Margaret Wells has ever known mm. and all she's doing is living in a situation that she's been forced to but actually taking control of it going I'm going to make my own house I'm going to run it by my rules I'm going to be fair to my girls I'm going to get them keepers so they're as best looked after as they can they basically live in a lovely house mm. and have a nice life apart from being owned by this man effectively that small factor <laughs> And it is just, you know, she is the kind of the hero we follow, but also question. And then she's opposed by this other board house keeper, Mrs. Quigley. I can't remember her first name. Who's the more traditional evil character of the show. Evil's a bit strong. <laughs> she's the she's the bad one mm. who doesn't care about the girls at all, sends them into awful situations, trades them when it suits her for her gain mm. and there's no no maternal instinct and it's so easy to be kind of like black and white about it and then that it really it really plays with you as the show goes on it's brilliantly performed by everyone in it and it's yeah it's a really really great watch mainly just i think my initial attraction to it was that big bright bold colorful fast-paced but also holds your interest tv mm. show i think you know i love a slow intriguing cop drama or line of duty-esque show but at the same time it's really lovely to just bash through it and and really enjoy (laughs) (laughs) really enjoy everything it throws at you there's no yeah it's just fast-paced and it's it it suits that it suits that environment yeah it's so true what you're saying about that anti-hero female character is quite a rare one on our screens i was thinking about Mm. birds of prey i don't know if you've seen that I haven't. Which is, I'm not quite sure whether I'm re- ready to give it a sort of judgment of like whether it's good or not. It's got a highly female cast and crew. I think Margot Robbie had a large hand in the producing and things like that. Oh yes, she's got a brilliant production company, doesn't she? Yeah, I don't know if she, I think she had quite a heavy hand in sort of designing this. And it's so true about how I think women creating female characters can create I mean and sort of Fleabag or something might be an example of this as well of creating these women that you really respect and admire and look up to and envy and think they're great whilst they've got some utterly despicable traits as well where they're doing things that you can't believe or I mean in Harley Quinn's case you know she's murdering people or betraying people left right and centre but like totally likable adorable character that you still want to be friends with and i think that yeah does sum up female friendships that you you know each other's deepest darkest secrets and you know that the other people are incredibly flawed and and you know what those Mm. flaws are and, and you accept them and love them and and have that friendship you know, with all those things in, involved. And I think, I, I wonder whether probably treading on vast generalisation territory, but whether that is a sort of female perspective on other females is, does have deeper layers and has darkness as well as that the or neither, you know, the angel or the whore kind of dichotomy that you could yeah. be both and still be the hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I... I'm always really drawn and really fascinated to those female characters that you doing the wrong thing, but you want it to go well for them. Mm. (laughs) But there's so many stories like that that where you do just root for them, even though you're like, oh, this is so many bad choices, but I I need it to work out for you. And I think, like you said, that connection to the perhaps more complex layers of female friendships is really valid. 
the Duchess, if you've seen that. <gasps> I have! Oh my gosh, I Catherine love that. Catherine Yeah, Such an it. anti-hero. Such an anti-hero. That is the perfect example. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, love it. That is, it was so brilliant. Yeah, bad decisions all the way through and you just want it to work. And just, yeah. everything she does is heinous, uh, but like she does it so wearing such beautiful costumes and with such sort of panache that you can't help but admire it and respect and oh so brilliant for sure there was actually oh i can't think of the name of it what's that new drama with billy piper in oh uh, yes everything i hate i hate i hate susie that's it isn't it or everything i hate about susie I haven't I've watched probably three four episodes of it I was so excited to watch it because all I'd heard was that it was the best thing ever and so I was ready to just be completely blown away not to say I wasn't but I watched it with Sam my other half we had such different reactions to it and we we are fairly boring and similar in our tastes to each other (laughs) when we choose to watch something together we tend to have a similar response and this really split us because he just couldn't get on board with anything she was doing. He really didn't like her. <laughs> I've, again, I've only seen about three or four episodes and I don't want to get, give it away to anyone. But the decisions and her choices and what kind of comes out about her, she's a, she plays a famous pop star actress and she's been a child star and then she's in the public eye and we meet her in her probably 30s with a partner and child. And what she's done, that what comes out, he kind of had a wall up against. He's like, I can't get on board with this character and this story and this this TV show because I just don't like her. And I kind of knew what he meant, but I also had looked at it in a completely different angle with much more empathy, not mm. to sound like he's just an arsehole. But you know what I mean? Like, it's just, I think... <laughs> I'm really nice and he's horrible so that's why I liked her (laughs) I support you entirely (laughs) yeah but there was it was one of the few times I really noticed a female male gaze on it and being like wow we're looking at this completely differently and I do think a lot of that is because of our gender Mm. yes I do want to go back to it and I'll probably end up watching the rest of it on my own and just see how we kind of ride out that character relationship but Mm. Because I watched Birds of Prey with my partner as well. It's like extremely colourful and joyful and has really good song choices. And and it's got a very kind of playful feel all the way through, which is, I mean, the epitome of of Harley Quinn. He did say that he felt like it was made for women and he felt Mm. like it, not that it... Not that it was any different, um, say, Deadpool or something, like that kind of playful looking at the camera. That narration with the audience Mm. and relationship with the audience is very similar to Deadpool and the flashbacks are very similar. But there was something sort of feminine about the energy in it. It was interesting because I didn't necessarily pick up on that. Yeah. And there are some very crucially maybe sort of slightly shoehorned in elements of nodding to femininity where she's uh, Harley Quinn's tied up to a chair and being tortured by this bad guy because um, he doesn't like her and she goes oh wait look in my pocket and because she's got a business card in her pocket and then they reach into her pocket and pull out a tampon and then he sort of throws it away and grabs something else and it's not it's not necessarily alluded to at all they don't they don't mention it at all they just sort of pick it up throw it away but like those sort of things of like actually how often have I really seen a tampon in a superhero film not that it's superhero necessarily (laughs) but like within that universe that it's that totally yeah though it's shoehorned it's sort of so there's something weirdly empowering about that that you're like yes you don't need to mention it yes like you know shoes yes colour yes 
female ways of fighting that are sort of more more kind of canny and using other people's weight against them and and there's a fight scene where one character's fighting and then her hair gets in her eyes and someone whips out a hairband so she can tie it back and things like hmm. that that is sort of crass but there's something really nice about that to to have that nod to femininity within a very characteristically male universe yeah and i mean if at the moment it has to be a bit crass like you said or a bit on the nose at least it's in there do you know what i mean it's like Mm. maybe once that becomes more normal it doesn't have to be quite so delivered in the same way no totally Um, But at the moment exactly as you said when do you ever see those references in mainstream big budget movies never so like if we have to properly elbow and shoe haunt them in for now fine let's do that and pave the path for you know when we don't need to do that yeah and i love the i love the allusion to the, the practicalities of fighting that you always you always look at i don't know black widow fighting in huge high heels or something Mm. the Suicide Squad film where Margot Robbie's running around in these huge stilettos and doing everything that all these men are doing but in stilettos and you're kind of thinking about the practicalities of it and going oh my god her feet just like her posture her ability to move around like this this is totally extraordinary both from the from the actor's perspective and realistically within the film so to have a sort of homage to the practicalities of moving around and trying to do stuff when you're if you're wearing sort of clothes that are too tight or you've got your hair in your eyes or something. I thought that was so lovely. Yeah, I love that. That must just be, I mean, imagining her as an actor on set, that's got to be a killer, hasn't it? Like, you just think of it from watching it, but actually, if you're running around, like you say, and doing the same things the guys are doing, but you're doing it in heels. Mm. I mean, I'm terrible in heels, so I'd struggle anyway. But, oh, I'd feel so frustrated that that's a, it's a box you have to tick and it just makes everything harder. Yeah, totally. Margot Robbie said about that costume, because it was incredibly short pants and... Mm. Not pants, sorry. I like guess, hot pants. Hot pants, yeah. It was just a very revealing outfit, and she said you know, how, how hard that was and how demanding that was on her on her physically to be on show all the time and running around and doing these stunts and wearing heels. And I think that's where the Birds of Prey came from was so much more of a place of embodying this character in a way that makes her comfortable and makes her happy with who she is. And mm. yeah, I thought that was that was lovely. Yeah. I thought that was really important, actually. Even if I didn't totally 100% love it, plot wise (laughs) i really admired that side of the film i thought it was just good fun Mm. and paving a lot of ways i think for femininity within big blockbuster films definitely yeah have we reached the end of all the things we <laughs> we want to say? <laughs> well, I was quite glad that we, there was more things that we didn't realise we wanted to say. I love it when other things come up like that. I know. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been The Grand Thunk and see you next week. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.